Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 11, 2. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. It's a book I've been expositing in God's strength over the course of the past several months, but we did take a break from it during Advent, and we're coming back to it this week. This is the 13th day of January, 2019. Got to get used to writing that, don't we? 2019. How many of you have written 2018 so far this year? I know that I have. It's very easy to do. Uh, Is the time of the year where sniffles abound, and I'm no different. I may sneeze or sniffle in this sermon. I'm sorry if I do. If you want to, when you greet me, just give me a little chicken wing. You don't have to shake my hand if you don't want to. Or you can lather up with hand sanitizer after it. I don't think that I'm contagious. I'm perfectly good to go, but I... I do have a little bit of Alka-Seltzer in me, so hey, who knows? I'm not sure. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, the ones I want to read. So just two verses, which means we're going to do some supplementary readings today to try to help us get the grasp of this text. Just before I read the text, I want to kind of set the table. Uh, I want to explain this morning that in the context of corporate worship, as well as for implications for our lives otherwise, we have a tendency to, to not follow and understand the clear teachings of God's Word as it pertains to the concept of biblical, and here's the the $10 word, headship, headship. And so from this text this morning, we are going to seek to understand, and from other texts like it, the concept of biblical headship. Now we'll get more into the applications of that for corporate worship in next week. But this week, just the concept of headship and the immediate implications for our lives um, based on our understandings. And I'm going to pull a little bit, uh, some excellent application toward the end of the sermon by a brother pastor in Louisville, Denny Burke. Great application. I'm going to pull from him almost directly because it couldn't do any better. He gives five points of application. I thought were great. So we kind of land there. Um, but this morning we're going to talk about headship. And I want to tell you that if you, I believe that if you will understand biblical headship, and actionably apply it in your life insofar as you understand it, I believe that you will know and reflect more of the very character of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's a lofty statement. Um, but I believe that you, you will. Now, before I even read the text that I'm about to read, I want to offer a bit of uh, a caveat um, a disclaimer, as we call it. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. How many of you sinned last week? Okay, not a problem with Wesleyan perfectionism in this congregation. We all know we're very much in touch with our sin. If uh, you know, All the hands go up if you didn't see. Uh, so we sinned last week. So how many of you sinned the week before that? Probably, get, yeah, and the week before that, we're sinners, okay? doesn't mean we're not saved by grace, but it means we are sinners, and we are making war against sin. We're not flippant. We prayed a prayer of confession for our sins earlier in this service. We're not flippant against our sin, but we are sinners. And what that means is, is that not only are we sinners, but those in our biological families, in our orbit of influence over the course of our young lives, they were sinners too, Further, what it means is, if those folks outright rejected the gospel or didn't live snuggled up to the message of the gospel, they're not only sinners by trade, but they're living in open rebellion. They lived in open rebellion to God in such a way that they probably did not, if they did, it was by accident. They did not very well reflect 
the idea of biblical headship to you. If you can, and these are lots of conditional statements, but if you can get your mind around that disclaimer, this material is going to be much more understandable and the implication is going to be much more applicable. Applicable, applied. Let me give you an illustration to make it easier to get your mind around this important disclaimer. If, if you have a, a um, uh, indoor plumbing in your home and something goes wrong with the indoor plumbing and you hire a plumber to fix it, but the plumber messes it up more, do you, A, decide that indoor plumbing is a failed proposition and decide to go back to the days of outhouses? Or do you, B, decide that there was perhaps some faulty plumbing lines in your home, perhaps there's some problems with the lines, or perhaps there's some problem with the technician that you hired to show you what, how plumbing was supposed to be done and to fix your problem? Probably the latter, right? If you, let's use a different illustration. If you go to uh, eat at a restaurant and come to find out two or three hours later you're not feeling well and then come to find out you have food poisoning from the food that you ate at that restaurant, do you A, decide that all restaurants are bad and forever and I'm not going to eat any food in any restaurants for the rest of my life? You may feel that way for two or three days. Or B, do you decide that I'm just not going to eat at that restaurant anymore, but I'm still going to eat at restaurants because the, the premise of restaurants, the idea, the principle of restaurants is not bad. It's just that restaurant was bad. Probably the latter, correct? We could go on with this, couldn't we? But I think the illustration holds. Just because you have gotten sick on or seen misapplied, selfishly, abusively, whatnot, the concept of biblical headship doesn't mean that you should, as they say, to use a... Uh, cliche, throw the baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't mean that you should throw out the whole idea of it. And so if you can get your mind around the illustration of the disclaimer and the disclaimer, this material is more palatable, I believe. And I think that it really will help you reflect God's character and understand God's character. Because I believe it's, and we're going to try to make this case today, I believe it's central. The idea of biblical headship, or headship for short, is central to the economy of God as articulated in the Scripture. So Let's, let's get started here. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3, just two short verses from our consecutive exposition in Corinthians. It says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That's it. Two verses. But it's enough to choke on. It's a little appetizer, but it's enough to choke on. But just two verses. Two verses. So since they're so short, how about we read them one more time so we really get the lay of it here. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So you're going to have an initial assertion of praise followed by three points. Initial assertion of praise followed by three points. Those three points come straightforwardly from the text. The first one is the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is 
God. Those are the three points. So an initial assertion of praise, and then three points. Coming straightforwardly from verse 3. And because I'm planning to go to other passages, you'll either want to keep this page marked or look on the screen at the other passages because that would be difficult to follow. But three, three straightforward points after the praise, statement of praise. It is the head of every man is Christ, number one. The head of a wife is her husband, number two. And the head of Christ is God, number three. First Corinthians 11, verses two and three. This past week... Um, I went to Louisville for two days, and I did some continuing educations, probably what would be most commonly uh, known as. And while I was there, uh, during my trip, uh, I got this new, newly released Tyndale House Greek New Testament. Um, I shared this with you so that if so that you know what I aspire to. I want to be, the Bible was originally written down in Greek. I want to be better at reading the Greek Bible so that I can think about what's being translated into English with you and, and make better application. It's not helpful for me to read the Bible to you in Greek. That's not helpful at all. But for you to know that I care about such things matters and for you to pray for my facility in theological academic things, I think is helpful. So please pray for me. I would like for you to do that because I fall woefully short of the kind of discipline that is required with the kind of resources that God has given to me. But I was around people that were encouraging and helpful and I got resources. So I wanted you to know that, that, that what, how to pray for me. Some of you also, the reason I share it with you this morning, and this is part of my, my, first, my first statement of praise here from this text. I also want you to know what you might want to study some, some of you may feel a, a sense of drawing toward the study of languages or the study of theology. And if you do, you know, I'd love to talk to you about that. Because God gifts the body all different ways. And sometimes we, we think, you know, nobody could ever in a congregation in Mount Vernon, Indiana, be called to. I don't believe that. The, the Spirit may be working with you on deeper study. And I would love to talk to you about that. I share that with you this morning. Um, because, you know, part of my calling as pastor is not just to manage, like a management office, but to study. Study is a big part, a large part of what it is that God calls me to do in the preaching ministry. The preaching is only as valuable as is the preparation that is behind it. And so you can help me hold fast to what has been delivered, just as I try to help you hold fast or to maintain what has been delivered. The Corinthians had a person, the Apostle Paul, for 18 months, Acts chapter 18 talks about it. We have his words and the other words of the apostles and the prophets as were given to them by the Holy Spirit, as they were carried on by the Holy Spirit to write. We have their words in our Bible. You have them in the Bible. So we have a printed word to maintain or to hold fast to. And this is a praise that I have for you, is that you have committed to holding fast to the words of God. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? I want to praise you this morning. The Apostle Paul, for all of the sins that the Corinthian church was trapped in, for all of the behavioral maladies, for the, for the disordering that had crept into their worship, they had not made a statement that these words from the Apostle Paul were wrong. They had not made a statement that the meaning of these words was fundamentally flawed. 
they understood the importance of the word, even if they didn't always apply it as such. And Corinthians is rife with examples of where they didn't apply it as such. We might be the same way. It may be that we, as a congregation, have sins we're caught in and maladies that are not praiseworthy. It may be, as we get into even this sermon, that there are times when we feel a little guilty or convicted would be a better word. But what I want to convey to you from the onset this morning is the praiseworthiness of your covenantal agreement to the inerrancy of Scripture. When it says, thus saith the Lord, you believe, thus said the Lord. That is what we do. If you are a member or a prospective member of this church, you don't get very far into reading our founding documents and our agreed-upon constitution without seeing that we believe in the inspired, infallible, and errant word of God. He has given us this book, and we are to live by this book. And even when we live out of line with this book, it is not that this book is wrong. It's that we are wrong. And I can praise you because you have affirmed that. And newer people, I can call you to affirm that. This is the canon. This is the rule. This is the book of all books. This is God's holy word. This is the Bible. And when he says here to this church, the Corinthians, when he says, you maintain that which I delivered to you, it's the same as me saying to you, I want to give honor. I want to give praise. I want to commend you, as verse 2 says, because you've maintained this. You believe this. Now, with every compliment here comes a correction. And what he says is, is that you say you believe this, but one of the ways, one of the implications for this is headship, and you're not evidently living that the way that it should be lived. And he tries to articulate what that's supposed to look like in light of equality of people's with distinction in roles. And he tries to articulate that based on the Godhead. And that's what gets into our three points now. Uh, But I wanted to start just telling you a little bit about my trip and telling you how important it is that we are very dedicated to this word. You have to be dedicated to the full veracity or truthfulness of this word before you can maintain it, before you can see the implications of it and apply it rightly. So it starts with that. And so you pray for me and I'll pray for you. And I say thank you for your commitment. I tell you it's a worthwhile commitment. It's a worthwhile uh, commitment indeed. Now, Look at verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Up above, it says, hold fast to the traditions, or hold fast, maintain, or hold fast, same word, the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast or maintain the word I preached to you. And so 1 Corinthians 15, same book here. It says in verse 2, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. So we are called to maintain or to hold fast that which we have had preached to us, the, the words of Scripture, to stay with what guide us where we are. We are called to do that. And so we're to hold fast. So verse 3, 1 Corinthians eleven three 3, says, I want you to understand something. It's building upon the premise 
that you have a praiseworthy maintaining of the scriptures, maintaining of believing that which Paul has said to the church. So Paul commends the church, and he wants to add to that commendation a correction. And it's the concept today of of headship, which I've already offered the disclaimer on. Now, headship connotes authority, which is nearly a dirty word, is it not, in today's culture? Authority. I mean, it is almost a dirty word in today's culture, but headship is not a dirty word in the Apostle Paul's understanding and in this biblical teaching. He wants you to know and to understand the beautiful secret to joy that is headship. It's appropriate headship. Note appropriate headship, not inappropriate headship. It's appropriate headship and appropriate submission, not inappropriate submission. Meaning there's a kind of inappropriate submission and a kind of inappropriate headship. And I'm sure that we've all seen them modeled directly or indirectly in our lives. Paul wishes that they, that all of you, that you all, every church member, would understand the value of headship in a common and and difficult way. Both. A common way that it says in verse 3, Christ is the head, or the head of every man is Christ, I should say. Common way. The head of every man is Christ. I think not so much pushback there. But then the head of a wife is her husband, not, not all men, but her husband only, a, in, in, indicating a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. That concept is abhorred because it has been presented at times wrongly. But it doesn't make all restaurants bad because a restaurant served you food that made you sick. It just means that you saw a bad rendition of restaurants. Same thing with headship. Let's not throw out what God says here. So in a common way, and then a more difficult way, and also a more difficult way, is the head of Christ is God. We need to talk about that just a little bit. What I'm going to do about those three things, I think, is kind of circle them back and forth, because the Bible does that. The Bible, as we look at different passages, it kind of talks about the latter two, and sometimes the first one there, uh, kind of in a, in, a, in a together, woven together way. And so we're going to try to do those three things. Again, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God by looking at some different uh, passages. So let's do that. Let's turn forward, or if the screen catches up with us, to 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 27, just a little ways forward. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 27, if you want to write it down for later. I'm going to go faster with these as we go, so I'll slower here. I'm going to pick up speed. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 27. Listen to what this says. This is Paul's words in this very section that we're in right now in Corinthians on role relationships and corporate worship, and he conveys this, that God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Notice that in the body in the body of Christ, which are the members of Christ, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If you ever want to see an apologetic for church membership, take them to 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 27. There it is. What what are the members of the church called? They are called the body of Christ indicating that if we are the body of Christ, then what is Christ? The head. You see the concept there? Do you understand? 
Let's go forward to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. So looking at Ephesians, we see the Apostle Paul here commending to us the understanding of the beauty of being in Christ or being connected to Christ or of headship relations. Listen to verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head. Do you see that word head? Intimating headship. Same Greek word translating it, translated as head in our focus passage from Corinthians 11.3 today. So he gave him as head over all things to the church, which the church is what? The body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the body, the members of Christ our head is whom? Christ. And so every man lovingly and, and voluntarily and, and needs to submit to his head, which is Christ. Now, a lot of the problems that we have with point number two is point number one. It is, it is difficult, if not wrong in some ways, it can be sin, to submit to a man who demands submission in the one flesh union of his marriage, but he does not do a very diligent effort of submitting to his head, who is Christ. That's where a lot of this runs off the rails, is you've got some men on an ego trip, and they don't understand that they, in the very same context of being called to lead their homes and lead the church, they are called to submit to their head, who is Christ. And until that submission works, headship will never work in the home. You see how these things are woven together. It's a reason I couldn't hardly bifurcate them or trifurcate them as I tried to try to go one, two, three. And so you're seeing them come together. If you, man, married man specifically, will not diligently seek to submit to the head that is Christ, you will not be a worthy candidate to be submitted to by the one that you are in a one flesh union, a covenant of marriage with your wife. The burden is on the men to begin with. And I want you to hear that. Young men in my hearing. It is your job now to submit to Christ with such tenacity, and I mean submit to Christ by seeking to know and follow his word, that praiseworthy thing I started with. It is your job to seek to submit to Christ with such tenacity that if and when God gives you a wife, you have experience submitting, and you know what it means, what it looks like to imitate the headship of Christ in your home, the domain in which you are to lead for Christ's glory. Now, because that happens so infrequently in our society, we think that all restaurants give us food poisoning. The tendency is to embrace a worldview that's not Christian, that is antithetical to Christianity. The tendency is to embrace a view of the world by which all hierarchical structures seemingly, all authority, anything less than anarchus is bad. But that is not derived from the clear teaching of the word of God. God bakes authority into 
not just his understanding for how things are, but God in and of himself, as we'll see, in the Godhead gives a sense of headship. Listen to how this flows out. Let's go to another passage that will help us. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. So here, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that God's hope in giving us this headship connection is that we will be built up, not tore down, for its benefits, not, not for its liabilities. Paul conveys God's word to us in that in the body of Christ, our shepherd teachers are here to equip us in this wordy tradition from the, from the Bible so that we can understand and with understanding those implications, make application. So I'm, I'm commending your commitment to the words. And I'm also calling you this morning to a deeper understanding of it, a more profound understanding of one simple principle, and that is headship. And listen to it. You'll see the word head near the end of this passage. But headship, think of that as we are are reading. I'll pick up in verse 11 just with the shepherd teachers, the shepherds and teachers. God gave these gifts to the church, particularly those that teach you, those that are teaching, the shepherd teachers. And what is the purpose of these giftings in the church, evangelists, prophets, shepherds, teachers? It's to equip the saints. It's not to be the big cheese. It's not to be egotistical. The purpose of these leaders in the church is to equip all the believers, the members, the saints, the body for work of ministry. Well, that then for what? For building up the body of Christ, the members, remember that language? What? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, until we attain to maturity, mature manhood, that's what's needed, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in every way into him who is, you see it there, the head. Into whom? Who is the head? Christ. You see here that the headship principle is deeply Christian. Look at verse 16. From the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it, it builds itself up in love. So we see this joyous headship. For Christ is the head of the church, the body, and that's even cascaded through the leadership and the role relationships and structures in the church. This is really important. I read to you from Corinthians 12 a minute ago, but you may not connect it here. I want to try to help you connect it. The body is set up so that the, the, the more modest parts receive greater honor, is what Corinthians 12 says. So the giftings of people that put them in front of you or in teaching roles with you, shepherding roles with you, in roles where there could be some notoriety, those giftings are to be served, are to be used to serve as servant leaders, not as, as egotistical um, sort of power mongers. The, the, those that are gifted to, to lead are called to serve, and they are to pursue a competence, not a power. Aspiring to the office of elder should be done based on a competence to serve, not a power to wield. It is reluctant to wield power, and power is a bad thing to pursue all in of itself. But competence, under the headship of Christ, some of you may aspire to the office of elder and deacon, and if that is the case, that is a noble thing that you aspire to on the authority of 1 Timothy 3.1. It's not an ego trip to aspire to that, but pursue competence and character. Don't pursue power. 
It's not a, it's not, that should come reluctantly. It should not come egotistically. We exist these giftings to equip the saints for the work of ministry that the body of Christ might be built up into the head that is Christ from whom the whole body is joined together. Each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I've noticed that lately in our church, the body being the body. I mean, my wife can't even break her toe without the body loving on her. I mean, you can't help but be in the body. I'm getting text messages last night from Brad. He's like, hey, are the sidewalks okay for church tomorrow? I'm like, who thinks about sidewalks at church on Saturday night? I mean, this is a church for you folks. I mean, I'm not just trying to just name drop here. I'm wanting you to understand. I could do that probably if I went back far enough with most of you. This is a body caring for one another, looking into the interest of one another, modest parts being more highly honored. This is what it looks like to trust. Not, not, it starts with says, I believe the word of God is the word of God. They don't disavow the words or the plain text meaning of the words. I take them in context and apply them. But not just that. It's a church that has for some time taken the expositions and put them into practice that they're starting to be kind of what they call in finances some time and some compounding. Like you're starting to see the effects of people taking God at his word. And I, for one, think that is a beautiful thing. It's not a trouble-free thing. I mean, do you think for one solitary second the enemy is going to set aside idol and not try to trip that up? I mean, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Do you think the enemy is happy when the body of Christ acts like it? No. No, absolutely not. It'll be something. It'll always be something. But the beauty is, is when people are seeking to outdo one another in service to Christ, in love, we get somewhere. This principle of headship was never to be wielded as a billy club. But in this fallen human condition in which we live, it often has been. It too often has been. We see this, this joyous headship for Christ in the church, the body cascading through it. And we see the Apostle Paul noting this essential headship concept in the book of Colossians also, concept in Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 19. It says that they were not holding fast to the head, obviously the head of the church being Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God, Colossians 2.19. So headship there of Christ. See, uh, this, is, this is how we're fed. It's how we're nourished. It's how we, we get good food in our body is through Christ the head. We're, we're grown by his word. And malnourished Christians, people, Christians that are malnourished, they, they either disaffirm God's wordy, tradition, his word, or as delivered through the apostle Paul and others, or they affirm it, and they just haven't tracked deep enough yet to find these profound implications for their lives, such as headship. So today's a great opportunity if, you, if you're affirming and you haven't gone deep enough yet. Listen uh, further to Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Here, Paul reuses the Greek word that comes to us, translated head, and he also uses a different Greek word that connotes authority. Listen to Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head, catch that head, of all rule and authority. We see some connection there. Some would argue that the Greek word that comes to us as head has no connotation of authority. Uh, I, I, I wrestled with that. It can mean fount or source. Um, there's good scholarship out there trying to, to make that case. 
I'm trying to give you a, a glut of biblical information to try to make my point saturatedly that I don't think it means source. Uh, you can read about that if you want to. If you're a scholarly person, you want to read about that. I, In my theological journey, I ran across George Knight III, who at one time taught at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, and he wrote a treatise on the role relationship between man and woman, and he gave a big section to it on just the Greek word that here comes to us translated as head or headship, and I thought it was convincing in light of the other academic research I'd read, and I've kind of clung to that since then and have seen it come to bear in my reading of Scripture. So I'm, I'm bankrolling. There's a lot of bankrolled stuff here when I say I think head means a sense of headship and not just a source that went, went not into the idea of authority. Um, so listening here, Colossians 2, 9 and 10, the head of all rule and authority. L- listen to how this concept is, is used. Head comes here in Colossians, also in chapter 1. The Apostle Paul makes it this point to the Colossians in this way, beginning in verse 17, reading down through verse 23. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the, and you can circle that or highlight it, he is the head. He is the head of the body and the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God, see that idea of deity, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Who would have dreamed it, right? Peace through the cross. Who would have dreamed it? And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, continue in the faith, stay in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And I'm, I'm not an apostle personally, uh, but I am a minister of the gospel in that way, uh, like Paul. And I have heard this implication of glorious headship baked into the DNA of the gospel story, such as, as here, this whole concept, understanding the relationship of the members of the church to the head that is Christ. Uh, but what about the relationship of Christ within the Godhead? You know, that can trip us up when we think about what Corinthians says about how uh, there is a sense. Of, well, I'll just read it to you. I have it right here. First uh, Corinthians eleven three. It says that the head of Christ is God. Uh, that, that can send us a little bit into uh, heresy land. The head of Christ is God. Well, what does it mean that the head of Christ is God? Does that mean that Christ is not God? And you would say, no, it does not mean that Christ is not God. Is, let me say it differently. Is not Christ God? Yes, Christ is God. Christ is very God of very God. That's who Christ is. But using the word Christ, rather than say the Son or God the Son, we're intimating, at least I think the text is intimating, the economic function that Jesus Christ played during his earthly ministry that is rooted not in his different value from God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are very much he's. They're very, very much pronouns, very much the Trinity, very much all, very, all God. Christ is showing you how you can be equal in value by nature of his very character and at the same time by a right understanding of who God is, a Trinity, he under shows you that submission within equality is okay and for your benefit. 
in light of who Christ is in the Godhead, we can find the strength to submit where we need to submit and when called upon to leave in benevolent headship to lead where we need to lead. This is about Christ. It's not about us. And if Christ were not deity, Christ, it wouldn't be about the word of Christ. And Christ wouldn't be referred to in such divine terms throughout the Gospels and beyond. Listen, for example, to Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ, the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Yes, by the way, on the authority of this and Ephesians 5.19, we do sing the psalms and we use the very instrumentation that the Psalter used when singing the psalms. Colossians 3.16 tells us that one of the ways that we worship the risen Christ, Christ deity, is by singing together with thankfulness in our hearts, Colossians 3.16 says. But when we read verses like 1 Corinthians 11.3, we can be led to think, well, then how do I shift through the gears of Christ being God and yet not thinking that being God the Father is a thing to be grasped, uh, to, to put it in terms of Philippians 2.6. We have to shift through the gears of what the Bible is saying and not just what we think that it ought to say. In, in doing that, it requires a depth of thought that we're trying to give today by putting together the connections and trying to, trying to look at the very sinews of Scripture so that we can understand the Bible on its own terms and not simply on the terms that we want to to put toward it. We can see, as the ESV Study Bible says, a wonderful resource for you, by the way, a wonderful resource. It says, the head of Christ is God indicates that within the Trinity, the Father has a role of authority or leadership with respect to the Son, though they are equal in deity and attributes. He says, see John 5, 19, 14, 28, as well as 1 Corinthians 15, 28 for that. And I've given you some examples of it here this morning. It says in the ESV Study Bible, which we, we recommend the English Standard Version Study Bible, it's great notes in it, something like 1.4 million words of commentary in the ESV Study Bible. It's very helpful. This is just one little thing that it says. It says, Paul applies this truth about the Trinity to the relationship of the husband and wife in a marriage, in a covenantal union, just as we are in covenant with Christ by being members of the church. He says, applies it to the relationship, the role relationship between husband, wife, equal value, different roles, equal value, different roles. In marriage, as in the Trinity, there is equality in being and value, but difference in roles. The gender role relationship frustration is a result of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden and is felt as far as the curse is found. Consider Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. This is where Adam and Eve have sinned. The very first marriage, Adam and Eve, our our parents, our first parents, they have sinned, and curses are being doled out as a result of sin infecting the very first people, and we're still a part of that infection. We have to be delivered from our sin by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And listen to what Genesis 3.16 says. It says, To the woman he said... I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Genesis 3.16. So this verse is saying something that should have been a natural, godly, in a very strict sense, godly 
interplay, connection, and complement between two, two differently created peoples, man and woman, is now frustrated. And friends, can I get a witness? Are, are manhood and womanhood not utterly frustrated in our world today? Are manhood and womanhood not utterly frustrated in our world today? Okay. And, and what I would say to that is, we've tried so many different ways of trying to reconcile non-binary solutions. But a novel, not-so-new idea would be if we try God's way. Frustrated restaurant food poisoning does not mean the concept of restaurant is bad. A bad plumber doesn't make indoor plumbing bad. This is a frustrated interplay, but it doesn't mean it is an interplay not worth pursuing. Listen to Ephesians 5, through 33. It's a lengthy passage, but I promise you it's relevant to this concept of headship. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Notice here, it doesn't say submit to every man. Don't be subservient to everyone. It doesn't say submit to your husband if he is an unbeliever. Corinthians 7 says that. And calls you to do things that unbelievers should not do. Don't submit to that. All kinds of qualifications. The intimation is, insofar as your husband is seeking to submit to his head who is Christ, then you should gladly submit to your husband. So all kinds of qualifications. But still, the principle is there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Notice head, head, headship, same word. Same word used in Corinthians. Can't get around it. Here it is. It's just... It's this inconvenient truth until it becomes convenient and helpful. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body, members, remember, Corinthians, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, there's the first problem, right? We don't submit to Christ so well. We're getting there, though. I'm bragging on you. I'm praising you. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also then wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's a reciprocal, a cascading relationship. It's broken down by the frustration of sin, but that's the ideal, that's the target of good restaurants. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How? Listen, husbands, I'm going to give applications at the end, and it's going to try to restate these things for you in practical terms. I borrowed them. I told you I borrowed them from another pastor, but listen to it in the text here. Husbands, love your wives. doesn't mean take a hiatus from interacting with your wife. It doesn't mean emotionally withdraw. It doesn't mean browbeat her with words. It doesn't mean impugn and demeanor. It doesn't mean be short with her. It means love her, how? As Christ loved the church. Well, what did Christ do? He gave himself for her. Now, that is a headship that a woman would find a little easier to submit to, wouldn't you say? It's not playing video games up into the night and watching too much TV. It's getting into the Word of God, being led by the Spirit of God, into the things of God, and reflecting that into your home. And that is a headship that a godly woman, not an ungodly woman, but a godly woman can be attracted to. That's a good thing, isn't it? I was going to start preaching, but I was afraid I would offend somebody, so I better not. Actually, I think I will. I don't want my daughters to not have a candidate of young men that lead like godly men. I don't want wimps. 
I don't want poets that aren't warriors and warriors that aren't warriors that aren't poets. I want young men that know this book and seek to live by this book and in the headship that Christ has shown us reflect that for them. Now, I'll tell you what that does not mean in any way, shape, or form. That does not mean at all, at all, that a man is to be heavy-handed and you have to do exactly what I say when I say it. What it does mean is this, is that as a man seeks to follow Christ, he is so much attuned with the way Christ leads that he tries to model that example for his family. And in all the leadership that the wife brings to the table, she always recognizes implicitly in this that there is a role relationship between man and woman that reflects rightly, when it's rightly done, to the watching world, the gospel of Jesus Christ himself, who didn't see it as a problem to, as 1 Corinthians eleven three says, have the head of Christ is God. Dr. Bruce Ware was my systematic theology teacher, and he said, the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, and he never seemed to be that sorry about it. In other words, it was kind of a quippy way of saying, never really had a problem being the third one listed. If you read through the scriptures, you see that, because equality of value is not the same as sameness in role. And that's, that's what I, I believe this text is trying to convey. It says here that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Is it verse 26? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. See this interaction with, the, with these different points? See, it's doing it again in Ephesians. He might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, we're pursuing holiness together in this dance that is a one flesh union of man and woman, of husband and wife. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of Christ's body, of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. There's a book that the Eggerges wrote called Love and Respect that's just based on that sentence. It's, it's worth reading. It's a pretty simple read. Love and Respect. Let see that she respects her husband. Husband, love your wife as himself. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. I don't know how you read that text and come away and say, well, there's no such thing as a concept of biblical headship. I mean, I've read how it's done, but I don't, I don't endorse it or embrace it. I don't see how that can be. This is a precept for us to embrace and to see implications in, and, and, and it is something that as we see implications in it, we, we can give a greater picture of the gospel to the world that is watching. It is, it is hard truth, but it is truth. Uh, theologian Kathy Keller wrote this uh, in her book on uh, justice, Jesus, and gender roles, the case for gender roles in ministry. And here's what she wrote. She said, justice in the end is whatever God decrees. So whether or not you're able to see justice in divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much you trust you have in God's, how much trust you have in God's character. If trust must be earned, Hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? And if God can be trusted then, gender roles with all of God's gifts to human beings are to be rejoiced in and enjoyed, not endured and resented. 
The Trinitarian reality, the Trinity being God, the Trinitarian reality allows the reader to understand our place within a liberating tradition. Whatever prescribed order one finds in creation is a result of God's good design and is intended to reflect his very nature. The son did not have to submit to the father for any reason besides redemption for humanity. He was not forced or coerced. He willingly submitted in order to secure our salvation. Personal deference and self-giving are a part of the fingerprint of the one who made us. Yes, our attempts at reflecting this are fallen, broken, etc. Yes, there are abuses, but the loving submission that the reader sees on display in the Trinity offers individuals a window into what redeemed human relationships might look like. Seeing the relationship of the Father, seeing the relationship of the Father and the Son enables individuals to disinfect their views of differences in role or function. She writes, the relationship that Christ has to the Father is the ultimate enviable, desirable relationship, and it takes the shape of willing submission. This one, this allows one to see that submission is not a denigration, but a beautiful expression of love. This is ultimately seen in the sacrificial reality that allows us to take our place within this liberated tradition. Ultimately, Christ, though he's the head, laid down his life for the church. And all this is from God the Father, the head of Christ, and from Christ, who is the head of his church. This grace drives us to live lives that reflect God's good creational order and in a way that compels rather than unnecessarily scandalizes the culture. Compels instead of scandalizes. So that's what I want, compelling, not scandalizing. The relationships of Christian men and women become the mystery that displays the gospel to a watching world. I told you I would offer... Uh, applications at the end for these these three points in verse three because they frame so much of what we have to do next week and beyond there's so many implications for our church and I can't outdo Denny Burke so let me share them he says for believers for husbands for wives for members and for unbelievers so five believers husbands wives members and unbelievers in the interest of time I'll go quickly but listen carefully especially as it applies to you for all believers question are you holding fast to all of what scripture teaches Are you holding it in the sense that it was delivered when the apostles and the prophets first gave it? Or are you modifying based on your own conception of what ought to be? You need to understand that your faithfulness is measured by what is revealed, not by what seems good to you at any given time. And what is revealed is what is written in Scripture. This is the word of the Lord. So believers, are you holding fast to what the Scripture teaches? Number two, husbands, are you okay with the fact that Christ is the absolute authority head over you? He is the head over you. Are you, and, and that you are the head of your family, are you okay with that? Have you reckoned with the fact that your headship is supposed to look like Jesus' headship? If I were to interview your wife and your kids about your headship, would they be able to report to me a correspondence between how you lead them and the way Christ leads you? Number three, wives. Are you okay with the role that God has called you to in your marriage? I'm not denying that sometimes this can be difficult. Sometimes husbands make it hard. But do you see God's design for marriage as good for you? Or is godly headship something that you regularly chafe against? It's true that he should seek to follow Christ's headship, but he's not going to be perfect in that. And if you wait for him to be perfect in that, you'll never fulfill your role as a wife. So there's a a dance there. Members, number four. 
Are you willing to accept the implications of this teaching for our entire congregation as we gather for worship each week? Read through this passage and and the entire passage, chapter 11 as well as 12, 13, and 14. Pray as we prepare to study the rest of this text in context. There are specific implications for our church in this body as we talk about headship in the church. I'll read ahead. Five, unbeliever. If you're listening to this message this morning and this is not making sense to you, this gospel that I've been referring to of Christ's love for his body, the church, and his headship and submission being cascaded and reflected in the role relationship that we have in covenant marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. If, if that doesn't make sense to you because we've either made a mess of showing it to you or because you just don't believe it yet, I want you to know one thing and one thing only. That is the gospel. And the gospel is this. We are all sinners. Every one of us. I am, you are, we all are. We are all hopelessly lost without an intervening God. But what God saw fit to do for us is to send his son Christ to die an atoning sacrificial death on the cross for us. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live for ourselves because we're sinners like Adam and Eve. And he died the death that we deserve to die, taking all of our sins on him so that while we've still been sinning, Christ has already died for us. He's already gotten out in his glorious headship and made a way for us to be Christians. And so the one thing you need to know this morning is the gospel. You don't need to put all the pieces together yet. You just need to know about his benevolent headship that grants you salvation if you'll receive it. Would you receive it this morning? That's the message for you. That's the alpha point. That's the starting point. An unbeliever, that is our message for you this morning. You need to receive that this morning. Finally and ultimately, I say to you, congregation, all of you here, every category, if you'll embrace biblical headship because God knows better than you do, the benefit for you will be knowing God's character better and reflecting that better to everybody. It'll be so, so much better. The very thing that we bristle at very often when we come to terms with delivers the most powerful blessings in our lives. I mean, my wife, she really didn't like me until she liked me. And now what a blessing, you know, I'm kidding a little, but isn't it that way though? Isn't it that way? Like, you know, the little girl that doesn't really like the little boy and that's usually the one she marries. We've talked about this, you know, it's that thing. I just, I just can't do Christianity. And then, oh my goodness, something breaks through and I love Jesus, right? Like it's that thing we bristle against winds up oftentimes being a great blessing for us. I think headship can be that thing for you. It's that thing I bristle at. It's that thing that I push back against, I chafe at. And yet, it is such a blessing when I come to see it in the very sinews of how God is and therefore how his word is. Does that make sense? Let's bow our heads together and pray. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your word. Help us, Lord, to understand it, to apply it, for you are glorious.
the more that we know you, the more glory we are going to see and understand and appreciate and enjoy. Please guide us, Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen.